Um, my worship practices and spiritual formation class in seminary was interesting. Um, my professor came out and uh, apparently had a thing with hipsters and uh, said, please do not show up on the pulpit with an iPhone and read the Holy Scriptures through an app. His suggestion was that it is better that we use a Bible so that people kind of get the perception that what we are teaching is coming from Scripture, which was a good point. Um, it shouldn't be our own ideas, and we shouldn't be making stuff up and selling it as Scripture, but his point is also lost because this does not give a fair representation of what we are actually working with. Okay, and as Dave said last week, as we take the Bible off the shelf, what does that mean? What are we taking off the shelf? And so today, we want to spend a little time looking at the history of the document or the history of the book that we call the Bible. If we were going to do that and we wanted to have a real presence or a real idea of what we're taking off the shelf, we would probably have to grab something like this. I just wrecked Sarah's scroll like big time. Um, and this is how people would necessarily read the document. They would pull this off the shelf, and this would simply be one book. So the Bible is made up of way more than just one book. It is made up of, um, well, a bunch of books. We think 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament as Protestants and as Mennonite brethrens and as people of this church. Um, but I want to go through it today and kind of open up what I've learned in the last week. Um, about scripture so saying that i want to preface this by saying two things uh, this is a very scaled down version of what's out there there is tons on how the bible was put together the historic the history of it how it got kind of chosen through the the books that were there and how we end up with what we have today so this is a very scaled down coles notes version of what we have, and I didn't think you'd want to have another lunch at church. Uh, the other thing is, I am not an expert in this, and I have found that there are much smarter people than I, so I am not the brightest light on the strand. Some people God made smart, and some people God made pretty. <laughs> and you are a new congregation. Um, great. So the canon. Um, I'd like to talk to you about the canon, and what I'm going to talk about is actually a, a dual canon book, and that's our Bible. Okay, the word canon in the Greek is canon. <laughs> so you can feel a little smarter today. And the canon of Scripture is a collection of biblical books that Christians accept as having unique, authoritative uh, words. Okay, some we will call it divinely inspired. Uh, God-inspired, but uniquely authoritative um, is probably the words I would use. And the Protestant expression of faith, or that that we are a part of, which means evangelicals, uh, we subscribe to 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. We share the canon with some other Christian expressions, but we are not in agreement on which books um, are in the canon, particularly in, in the Old Testament. The Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Christian Church uh, share the Old Testament with us, but they have additional books, 14 
called the Apocrypha. Okay, and that's the intertestimonial prayer. We're going to talk a little bit about that, kind of why we, don't, we haven't chosen to include those. And the New Testament seemed to be fairly consistent. We do share the Old Testament with our Jewish friends. Actually, we stole the whole thing from them. So, um, the oral tradition, and I think that's where we start, is way back about 2,000 years ago, the oral tradition, okay, 3,000 years ago, was probably the thing that people used to transfer knowledge. So if you think way back, as people were describing things, it's not like they sent someone down to the staples, the prehistoric staples, and Moses picked up a tablet and walked home and started writing stuff down. This was an oral tradition that was passed on from generation to generation for, for almost a thousand years. And as they passed this down, they would pass down um, kind of their idea of what God was and who God is and um, kind of things that they were learning as their faith became something that was transformed um, in them. The first book that we know of that was ever written down was the book of Job. We don't know when it was written, but we're assuming that it was written between 1500 and 1400 B.C. I didn't know that. Uh, the next series of things that were written down was the Ten Commandments on that story when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments and brought down and uh, smashed them. And then he got to get the second verse or the second round and came down. And those are stored in the Ark of the Covenant, and they became foundation to what the Jews believed and what was in their faith. That was, that's the foundational testament in some respects. Um, surrounding that then, Moses is thought to write the Torah. And I say when Moses, I want to talk a little bit about authorship, because when we say Moses wrote it, we think Moses wrote it, or Moses or someone close to Moses wrote the document, because, um, and, and at the end of the Torah, or at the end, um, he dies, and someone completes it. So we know that it's not just Moses that was writing it, but it's attributed to Moses, and that um, is something that we've got to keep in mind as we go through the Old Testament text. That even though there are names attached to the Old Testament text, that it might not be the individual person that is writing it, but actually um, someone might be writing it for them, kind of like a, a ghostwriter, right? Someone that's close to them and they're writing it for it. So we know that with Jeremiah. Jeremiah didn't write Jeremiah. Um, he had an intern that he made write Jeremiah, and, uh, but it was his thoughts and it was his belief. And so what people are saying is it's kind of like a denomination or a way of thinking. And so when we read Jeremiah, that's the way Jeremiah was teaching, and those are the teachings of Jeremiah. The same is with Isaiah. Uh, we expect that Isaiah didn't write the whole book of Isaiah because it's simply too long. And so they expect actually two or three different writers that would have been written and, uh, and included into Isaiah. Um, it's as these writings continued, um, they, would, uh, they would start showing up. But the crux of the, of the document, or, or the beginning of the faith, after the New Testament, or sorry, after the uh, Ten Commandments, was this thing called the Law, which is the Torah. And it's this part that Moses added to, to the Bible. And then as Scripture kept going, and as people kept um, engaging with it, 
other books would be added. So, if I can give you an example of the books of the Old Testament, um, somebody would write something, uh, so Isaiah would write it, and it would be added into the religious documents. Okay, Dave, can I get a glass of water? They would be added into the religious documents that the, the synagogue or the tabernacle would have. It wasn't scripture yet. Okay, this was simply religious documents that would be kind of like face back or point back to the, to the law. And that's what the Israelites had. Okay, they had the law, and then they had these documents that were kind of coming on, or these teachings that these prophets would then bring forward, and, um, and they would be added. So, that's the Old Testament, is everything would be then linked back. And so when the Pharisees got to, or not, when the, um, sorry, when the rabbis got together and started thinking through this, and as they kept getting these writings, thank you, and as the rabbis would keep getting these writings, everything would be linked back. And so everything that we read in the Old Testament has been broken up into different parts. The first part, the Torah, we've talked about. The second part were the prophecies or teachings of the prophets. These are people that would come in and bring people, usually bring people back to the teaching, okay, of, of, of the law. They would say, you're sinning, you're falling away, we're going to teach. So it all gets brought back. That is well accepted, um, both of those in the development of our Old Testament, okay? So all the minor and major prophets, they, supply, they, they give us a narrative of what happened, but they also talk about this process of coming back to God and doing what God desires for them to do, which is found in the law. The third section that's kind of accepted or is accepted in our Old Testament um, is the writings. And the writings consist of like books like Ruth and Nehemiah and Ezra. So these weren't prophets, but they were Christian writings that somehow appeared. Now, other writings also appear, okay, into the Jewish, like a, as they're building their, as they were building their, other writings also showed up. Um, so Ecclesiastes, um, Song, of Sol, uh, Song of Solomon was approved, but the, uh, the Letter of Solomon was not. And there's about 14 different books in the Old Testament that were part of religious writing that did not seem to fit in. They were actually um, add-ons or things that didn't seem to fit the, uh, the qualifications. And the qualifications are, again, does it bring people, like the prophecy, does it bring people back to the law? And the writings were actually, does it give tools for people to obey the law moving forward? Okay, so the one around reconciliation back to the law, and the writings seem to push people forward. It's the writings that are probably the most controversial still in, in um, the Jewish, in Jewish circles. Okay, and the reason for that is because there were a number of books that were not accepted as part of the Jewish writings. The Jews in Palestine. So they had this book called the Apocrypha and apocryphal writings that would, that would show up. Um, the most famous of these is the Maccabean um, Revolt. So we have a section, if you have our Bible, we have a 400-year section that seemed like everybody had writer's block and nobody, nobody filled anything in there. Um, but in the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox Church, they have these writings, and what they called them were um, like Apocrypha, but it's hidden writings, or it's, it's a hidden 
um, kind of a hidden canon. And so they accept that as being inspired. The Protestant church does not. We, uh, we went through a process and said, okay, we don't, we don't feel that those are the inspired. They still have a place. Now, in the Catholic church um, and the Orthodox church, um, they pull most of their information from the Greeks, from a, from a Greek text called the Septuagint. Okay, and the Septuagint, the, Septuagint uh, the scriptures in the Old Testament, they were translated into Greek by the Jews that remained in Egypt. The Septuagint contained 14 books called the Apocrypha, and the so, called, so the first century Christians lived in Egypt um, that could understand Greek, and likely so they translated this so they could understand it, and they had this, but the Apocrypha was part of that. In Palestine, the Jews never accepted the Apocrypha as being a part of the inspired word of God. But the Jews in Egypt did. And so it's likely what happened is the first century, or the first Christians, the Jewish Christians, would actually, in Egypt, thought that was part of the, the ongoing. And when, when that was translated into Latin, um, the Apocrypha was also part of that. So there's a big branch of Christianity early on that thought that was the kind of the, the idea of Scripture, um, was the Apocrypha. Uh, and again, there was just some, some stuff. The Apocrypha is a set of Christian writings, mostly in the intertestinal period. It's 400 years. It consists of books like First and Second, Esdras, Tobit, um, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, um, Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, uh, the prayer of Isaiah. So a bunch, my favorite is the song of three young men, um, which I thought would have been a neat title. And the most famous would be one and two Maccabees. The Roman Catholic Church, as we said, believe these are divinely inspired, but not as divinely inspired as the other 39 books. So when I kind of heard that, I kind of went, okay, that's kind of like being a little bit pregnant. Um... If I can, you know, so the idea that this was, they're not taken as seriously, um, but still seriously. Um, we followed the Jewish scripture, as I said, which didn't have the, the additional books attached to it. The Palestinian Christ, uh, Jews that we follow. Um, the Old Testament was affirmed, or let me say. So still right now, there's this little bit of question whether the Apocrypha is an accepted, or what value does it have? And let me say this. I, I think that there's value in books that aren't Scripture. Like, I think if we understand where we place Scripture, books like the Apocrypha are important because what happens is they give testimony to what was happening to the people during that 400-year period. We'll have a better understanding of the New Testament if you read the Apocrypha. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I picked up in, in my studies was um, there's a verse in Maccabees, and I think it's 13-something. So 2 Maccabees 13:44, and it gives instruction on praying for the dead, right? And this idea that you pray for the dead and you would hurry their time through purgatory. So if you didn't read Maccabees, you would probably have, like, you would little understanding of what, what the Catholic Church is talking about as that's one of their, one of their things, is that they, they do this. Other things is we don't understand the complete um, story or the history that happened during a 400-year like segment. So this idea of Mary 
of where the, the church, um, the Roman Catholic Church comes from. We get a better understanding if we read, again, some of the apocryphic li- literature. But again, we would say that it's, you know, we don't think it's um, inspired or, or authoritative. Okay? So the Old Testament, this is where I want to wrap up. The question, the question of inspiration of why these books um, got inspired, and there, there's two thoughts. Is it centers around the idea of prophecy that would pull, pull people back to the law, pull people back to obeying Christ. And it would center around this idea of God's covenant, okay, um, where moving forward and how to be obedient to God's covenant. And that's the writing. So Psalms, Proverbs, like all the writings that necessarily didn't come from a prophetic voice, um, they included those as the writing. Is that, is that kind of clear on the Old Testament? Just really quick, kind of, Randy's looking at me, and I think I got a bunch of that wrong. Uh, but good, we're done. Uh, New Testament. Um, Farly less, I thought that would have been way more controversial. Um, and it's not. It's actually far less controversial. The controversial part is the writings of the Old Testament went to about 400 um, A.D., so 400 years before Jesus showed up. Uh, the Protestant approach was that's, the, that's because Jesus was in Palestine, that's the, that's the scripture, that is the canon. And so what happened is there was um, Jewish rabbis that sat after the time of Christ, probably 80, 90, that decided that this was the closed canon then they would use. So if you can imagine, okay, 800 years of having a closed canon or a closed book or a closed religious book that we leaned on, and then all of a sudden, other people start showing up because of Jesus and start wanting to add additional books to the gospel. And that's what we have, this new canon that kind of seems to be coming up. So it introduced, I said, introducing, um, you know, new, new story, a, a new story to an 800-year closed gospel might be a little tricky, especially because the first church and the first Christians were Jews. So they began to introduce Christianity into this. And the first, Paul probably, like in our New Testament, Paul probably, he wrote the first letters, right? And they weren't scripture. It's not like the church came to Paul and said, you know what, can you just, like, we need, to, we need a new gospel, and we want to tell the story about Jesus, and so can you write um, a bunch of books and just can put those in a, and then we can use that in the church. That's not what happened. What happened was Paul wrote letters to churches that he had planted. These are small house churches throughout the area, and he'd write letters to them simply to be encouraging, simply to give instruction. And so all the time, if you read the letters to Romans, to the Roman church, he would write a letter, to the Corinthian church, to the Thessalonian church, he would write these letters and they would start being dispersed. Um, those letters then were, were gathered, um, and that's what we, for the most part, have is our new, a big chunk of our New Testament. The other part is the Gospels in the New Testament, and the reason we have the Gospels is because Paul started telling people about Jesus, and people were saying, who's Jesus? And so they, they thought, okay, we should actually write that down and write the story of Christ. And so you have four different versions of people's experience with Christ. Now again, there were other documents in the New Testament that showed up, and they had to be sorted through over time. 
Okay, the famous one uh, Dave mentioned last week was the Gospel of Thomas. But there was more, uh, 12 to, and not a ton more, but 12 to 14 um, different testaments and um, books that were submitted and looked at as they went through that. Um, the deciding factors on the New Testament books uh, that were entered into the canon, you have to remember that they went through a process on this, okay? Um, all the books in the New Testament were written in the first hundred years, or like before 90 AD. They say actually before they decided on the books that would be part, like before the rabbis decided on the books that would be part of the Old Testament, all the books of the New Testament had been written and submitted. Okay, they had, they had copies of them. And so I found that quite interesting. I thought they would have decided a long time ago, but they, because this is a process and because they're, they're working through this. In the New Testament, they did the same thing. The deciding factors were threefold. First, they had to be written or heavily influenced by an apostle. So someone that had a close, very close connection, one of the disciples, as they become apostles, they were respond, and if they were the author, that was one of the deciding factors. And we still run into the problem with Thomas because the Gospel of Thomas wasn't accepted as part of the, part of the New Testament canon. However, orthodoxy, um, that the writings um, chosen held a theology and ethics that prompted, um, that showed a coherent story or, or that the, the moral and the ethical values that were, were consistent to all the books of the New Testament. And that's why the Gospel of Thomas was excluded is because it didn't fit with the overall um, message of, of the church and of Christ, and so there had to be a unity among the, uh, the books that were allowed in. Um, and that they didn't contradict each other. Okay, so that there was a consistency to that. And the third thing is, is that there is, in the book I read, talked about a unity in the churches or that it was beneficial for all the churches. So we're missing... I don't know if you knew that, but if you read 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians talks about a previous book. So 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and then there's a 3 Corinthians. Someone misplaced the letter. I think it was the youth pastor. He'll probably get blamed for it anyway. But this letter went missing. Now, it went missing, or it wasn't beneficial for the other churches in the time, and so they didn't include it as part of as part of the, the, the New Testament canon. Now, the New Testament canon, so for those three reasons, right? Church unity, um, orthodoxy, and uh, they had to be written by an apostle or somewhat heavily influenced um, by apostles. So James and Jude, right? Family of Jesus. Um, John, Paul was an apostle. He wrote most of the Old Testament. So they have all these things. It was, I forgot this about these. The order... It's just weird. The order in the Old Testament, um, we followed the Greek. Remember the Greek Bible that was, we followed that as far as order. We didn't include the Apocrypha, but we followed the order. Because the Palestine Jews um, ordered the Old Testament um, kind of like Torah, prophets, writings. And that's how, so they're, they have a little bit different order than us. In the New Testament, they, they did, um, they ordered a little different. They did the Gospels up front. And then basically they went on the length of Paul's letters. I thought that was a really weird way of doing it. Okay, we'll just go on length and just st stack them up that way. And then at the end, there'll be other writings from the other 
And so, and, and the only exception to that would be Hebrews, because there's some controversy on who actually wrote Hebrews. So Paul wrote Hebrews, they kept Paul's letters together. We're not sure if he wrote Hebrews for sure, because it's written in a very different manner than his other letters. Um, and that's pretty much how we have come up with this, this Bible on text. It wasn't until 400 years after, like 400 AD, that they actually got together at a council, um, Council of Carthage, uh, that they affirmed the 39 and 27 books as part of the, the Bible. And so there was a meeting and they, and they actually affirmed that. 400 years or 300 years after Christ, and so the church is growing and growing and growing, um, but very the completed letters hadn't been um, put together yet. Now, that's hard for us to understand a little bit because we don't, like, I can go to the store tomorrow and buy a Bible. Well, they didn't have that. Nobody walked around with scrolls. Like, can I take the scroll home? It was painstaking the way that they would work through this and, and trans, like, write it down. Right? So nobody took, like, I, I was thinking about calling a Jewish synagogue because we still have scrolls and see if I could borrow, like, Isaiah. And I'm not sure they would like that. Um, so these are very valuable, very, very much like the history is in there, and they, and they guided these things or guarded these things. Um, and so with that, I'd like, there's some other events through Scripture, a lot of different events through Scripture um, that shows us how we came up with this. Um, some of those was, in the year 400, the Roman Catholic Church declared that Latin was the official language of the Bible. So that had a major um, influence in who could read it and, uh, and how it could be, you know, listened to and heard. And, and again, you know, people would go to church and not, not even understand what, what Scripture was, um, unless you knew Latin. Uh, and really, the only people that really knew Latin were the priests and so you would go to church and not understand. Uh, second thing I found really interesting, because we have some Wycliffe people here. Um, John Wycliffe, uh, he started to translate, and this is in about 1428. Uh, he started to translate the Bible back into English, or into English, not back into English, into English. And so he, dis he started doing that, and then John Wycliffe was, and that's why we have the Wycliffe translator, because he felt everybody should have the Bible in their own language. And so that was 1400, um, 30 years after his death, the Roman Catholic Church put him on trial and um, like, talk about holding on to some bitterness there. Eh? 30 years after they, they, they basically charged him with 260 counts of heresy. So he's dead and 260 counts of heresy. And just, just to make a point, they dug up his bones, burned them and threw them on a river. And so I just found that remarkable on, you know, how they, how they would protect that. In, 19, in 1455, the Gutenberg Press, which really changed, like, our society as much as the Internet has done recently, but the Gutenberg Press made it the first time that they could mass produce um, biblical studies so that people started to get the Bible in their own language and in their hands. And, uh, again, incredibly important. And the final date... Was 1947, they made a discovery in Israel called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there, Trinity Western has done like a, a ton of work on this. I, I, like it's just amazing. If you go there, you can actually see a scroll in their library that's uh, fairly, fairly old of the Torah. 
um, but they have done so much research on, on what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's been a, a really neat testimony to the scripture that we have because not that much has changed. And it was really neat. They found all the books um, of, the, of the Old Testament, except for Esther, from my understanding. I'm looking at Randy because I think he knows. But I think except for Esther, they found all the books of the Old Testament, and, and they, were, they were almost si- like so similar to the translation that we have today. And they're still working on this. This is only 60, 70 years ago that they found this. And so what a neat testimony is that. I want to close with this. This Bible, um, I find incredibly valuable. I, I love the study this week of actually going through and learning about the history of Scripture and, and doing that. But one of the challenges that I've had is I have, um, I, I consistently talk to friends of mine who, and we feel the Bible is consistently under attack. And sometimes we get very defensive on that. Even preaching today, I'm like, can you talk about controversy? Like, should I talk about Song of Solomon and how in the world that got into the Bible? Right? Like, your, your, your women, her things are like gazelles. And, and I'm like, how in the world do senior pastors sit in an office and try to explain, does this fit in? Like, I can see a bunch of rabbis kind of put that in Scripture and, you know, and then they left the room. The youth pastors came in and said, yeah, we'll put that in. Um, so... I find it, and, and there, there tends to be a lot of criticism towards Scripture. Here's what I have to say. 400 years had passed before they had a document or something of the New Testament that they would pass on to the church. And the church was growing incredibly. So for 400 years, they did not have New Testament Scripture. And I looked at some of my friends who are critical about the Bible and critical about, and, and we tend to get so focused and so protective of God's book, of this inspired, we tend to get, and sometimes we lose focus on what this is actually pointing us to. For 400 years, the church grew because they focused on Jesus. They focused on what Jesus did what he was all about on his crucifixion, on his resurrection. Sometimes in the church, we become so defensive about this book. Oh, they might, like, anytime anybody, it was a few years ago, they found this coffin somewhere, and it was the James coffin, and they were so worried that somehow it would attack this Bible. And it's almost like this Bible has become what we focus on. And it's not. And the verse that Christoph read says, no, Scripture points to me. Scripture points to Jesus. See, I don't, I think it's important we take this off the shelf. I do. I think it's important that this is part of your, I think we need to study it. I, I dare you. But if this is where it stops, you've missed it. This points to Christ and Christ's influence in your life. This tells you about him. Can I pray?
God, I thank you for South Langley Church and the opportunity that we have for the next little while to dig into your word, to look at scripture, to explore different aspects of scripture, to look at the history and the theology and everything that you've allowed us to get a copy of today. And God, more than that, I pray that our focus as we read through these pages and as we study this book continually draws us back to you continually draws us into a relationship with you and that we glorify you in all we do. For Jesus' sake, amen.